Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very exciting episode of Relating to DevSecOps, where we explore the development, security, and operational issues of today so that we can solve real-world problems on the ground with people that face them. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe, comment, rate, and send feedback so we can continue to bring you the content that matters to you. As always, I'm Ken Toller, and I'm joined again by Simon today, but we are extremely excited for our first guest of 2021, Jonathan Schwartz. John is currently the CTO of Jetty, but has come from a variety of engineering and product roles in the past, and I thought he'd be great, a great voice to add to the mix so that we can get the engineering leadership view on all things DevSecOps. John, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for humoring us and uh, being here to chat through the absolutely loaded buzzword, DevSecOps. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your, uh, your schedule to talk with us. Hi, uh, Ken and Simon. It's great to be with you guys again. Yeah, hey, glad to have you. Yeah, I'm a, I'm I'm pumped for this one. Um, I think this is a this is one that we haven't tackled in a while. Uh, we haven't had too many guests, and we're we're uh, we're rolling full steam ahead to to bring folks like yourself on here, so people can hear what you have to say. So uh, first, you know, we're hoping to get inside your head a bit and give you a chance to say hi uh, and pick a side, uh, so to speak. So if you had to pick a, you know, like a crew, do you feel like you've most represented, um, you know, engineering security or DevOps in your, in your career? Where do you come from? Tell us a little bit about John. Yeah. So, uh, my career, I, you know, I'm definitely in the engineering camp, uh, definitely in the product engineering camp. So did most of my, uh, uh, early days was being a line engineer, um, and then I, you know, progressed up into becoming the VP of product engineering at uh, On Deck Capital, where I met you guys. Um, so most of my career has been focused on engineering. Um, I learned to love my uh, Dev and SecOps team, um, and now as being a CTO, um, responsible for security and um, kind of the Dev the the DevOps side of it as well. So learning to appreciate that well. So you can think of me as a convert now, maybe. Uh, a security convert or a DevSecOps uh, Definitely got to be a security convert being a CTO. <laughs> yeah. so. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I think there's probably people listening that will be happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we've, we've talked a lot about DevSecOps in the show and we spent a lot of time unpacking it as like this buzzword that's loaded with a bunch of stuff. Um, what would you say... When you hear DevSecOps, what does that mean to you? Hearing that as a as a CTO, like, do you roll your eyes? Do you do you sort of mull it over in your head? What's that look like? Yeah, to I immediately you? start checking the calendar to see if there's somewhere else I need to be. No, um, <laughs> so I think uh, it, it's it's definitely evolved for me over the past couple of years. I think I've always worked in regulated spaces, so you know, security and information protection has always been key. Um, but I've I definitely have had an appreciation moving to a smaller organization now, um, in uh, you know kind of making it a first class citizen and paying attention to it um, when issues are coming up. So I think uh, my ears probably perk up a little bit more now than they probably did in the past, where maybe it was like, oh, this is just going to mess with my sprint or my deliveries. Uh, but now I think it's it's one of those things you want to get ahead of. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you, when you say it's going to affect your sprint or your, your capabilities or sort of what, what happens in your day to day, what is it about DevSecOps that gives you that, uh, um, 
that initial reaction? Is it just you feel like there's a lack of understanding around it or you know that you're going to spend a lot of time explaining things? Like, where does that come from? I think, well, it naturally, you know, if you think about product engineering, um, product engineering is always fighting the battle of having enough time to build their features. Um, you know, people are trying to ideate on some solution. They're trying to scope that solution. The scoping always takes a little bit longer than it could have in the beginning, right? Um, so there's always this squeeze as you get later in the project. Um, so whenever there's a squeeze, there's always a look to see what you can drop. Um, and I think that's where kind of the dev, um, the DevOps and the, especially the security asks start to get squeezed out, right? Because it's just a matter of people trying to ship, trying to ship quickly. Um, and it's always like, well, do we need to do this right now? Or, you know, um, is there something that uh, uh, we can do this maybe next sprint or maybe not at all, right? So I think there's uh, a lot of pressure on the product engineering teams to ship and um, they're always looking at things that they can drop. Yeah, I, I've, I feel you on that. Looking for the squeeze, man, I, you know, it, and not not this GameStop AMC stock squeeze <laughs> or anything. This is the security DevOps squeeze. No, I, I get where you're coming from uh, there. I that is definitely what I face most of the time is is asking for that time. And the reason I think I latch on to DevSecOps as a concept is, you know, we're trying to make that whole time conversation uh, better. You know, we want to we want security to be faster. We want security to sometimes, you know, increase the speed that engineers and and developers can work just like DevOps does. And so I that's that's where I I'm like trying to unpack it, get out of the it's just another security term, uh, security, finding a way to shove their their claws into the engineering process. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with the squeeze aspect. Uh, it's, it's a constant struggle. I do think DevOps or DevSecOps has helped, but. I still don't think that product engineering is, is is ever kind of taken off of its pedestal. You know, you still need to ship things, you still need to launch things. And I don't know, in my my previous experience, usually what I've seen with security asks is it's usually not um, a net gain. It's what is the minimum risk that we need to address in order to let product engineering develop. So like I, I agree the squeeze is real, but I still feel like ultimately I'm gonna get the final say. Got it. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's what we're that's what we're trying to do is is change the narrative a little bit. Um, but you know, John, that's what we're trying to do now. Uh, you know, just from the DevSecOps aspect and trying to figure out how security can adopt these practices that DevOps has has adopted and make things more efficient uh, and smaller and more consumable and tangible to engineers. But you've you've sort of already come to the conclusion, you know, that security is a partner in your world, and I've always appreciated that in our conversations around how to view things with engineering and how to to gain some buy in from those teams. Um, what was that like? What was your first experience with security like versus how you see it now, and what drove that change, you know, through your career? Yeah, I mean, it's probably hard to say the first. Um, experience because I'm sure I'm dealing with security people throughout my career. Um, but I would say probably the first um, experience that I can think of where um, there was a true partnership between security, um, probably DevOps and product engineering was when we were looking at um, uh, the ways of solving um, 
kind of credentialing in production systems. Um, we were looking at using a, basically HashiCorp to be able to um, uh, get real-time access to those credentials. Um, prior to that, you know, we had a solution where it was kind of hard-coded into the into all the code bases, and whenever we had to rotate credentials, we had to basically shut down product engineering for a sprint um, and then rotate those credentials. Um, and you know. Like every schedule in product engineering, there's always some team that can't do it for some reason. So it's really, while it's a sprint's worth of work, it has some sort of overhead and it winds up dragging on for two to three sprints. And then you have that one team out there that hasn't done their rotations yet. So management has to get involved and get them to do it. So there's all this overhead that needs to get in there. Um, and I think one of the kind of best like engagements that I had with uh, the DevOps and tech teams was that, you know, they came to me and they were like, look, we can make this go away for you. Um, and one of the ways we can do it is by using this tool. Um, so I didn't really care about the security aspect of it. I didn't really care about the DevOps aspect of it. Uh, I'm probably overstating it to say I didn't care, but I think the thing that attracted me to it was the fact that I didn't have to shut down the product engineering teams and do these credential rotations anymore. And I think that was the thing that got me to be like, to start paying attention um, and say, actually, this is a project I can get behind. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that because I think, you know, when we think about security a lot of the time, um, we always are looking at it, especially in the security industry, as how can we automate our existing security testing process or how can we do things better that we already have today? you know, make the scanning faster or make, you know, these, these things faster that we have. And we've never really matured that process. And engineering is, is not a, you know, like you said there, it's about that squeeze. It's they're looking for how to build uh, their product and what they can cut. And if it's not something that, that is being driven by their leadership, they find it hard to, to work within that. At least that's been my experience. So with a project like that, it sounds like, you know, um, there's a there's an engineering aspect to it. You're adding to the product. In addition, you're getting these security benefits. Yeah, and I think that's something. Yeah, oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say uh, something. I think I brought forward to my my current role as well is that um, you know uh, finding ways of uh, selecting security solutions that advance the um, the the capabilities of a company. Um, and make things easier for the end stakeholders, I think are ways to, uh, especially when you're in like a startup and there's, you have very limited budgets, you have your cash is very tight um, and there's a lot of pushback on why do we need to do these controls now? Um, if you can articulate the control in a way of making um, the, the world better for everybody who's using it, I think is a huge plus. So um, like an example that uh, we did was uh, we had to select a, an ID provider um, and by doing that, we were able to articulate how onboarding employees would be quicker, how allocating apps to them would be quicker. Um, and now I think they, they see the value in it. Um, and it, they don't really care about the security aspect of it. So, you know, from the technical side, we get the security, but from an ops point of view, they get access to um, the apps and the credentials that they need in, in a timely fashion. Yeah, and I'm sure that has um, benefits for, I don't know what, how your organizations have been structured, but I'm sure that has benefits for like HR or, um, you know, 
IT in terms of onboarding and help desk and all these teams that benefit from a security function? Yes, uh, we have a clear understanding of like, you know, which accounts are active at the company and having, you know, the ability to do those audits. And because uh, when you're in a startup, also you get a lot of people who are coming and, you know, transient, uh, you know, consultants and things like that are helping you. So having controls around that, I think, is really valuable. Um, so I think it's uh, it is definitely a um, a benefit to be able to articulate the the operational flow and how it improves uh, the world for either an engineer or um, for an operations person um, for an HR person. I think those are those are things that will get people to pay attention to to security. Got it. No, that's great advice, uh, and I and I agree. I think that a lot of times. You know, if, if you look for where that where you're going to make that bridge, uh, it can definitely be be helpful to gaining that buy in. Sometimes you don't have that. And in cases like, um, I don't know, maybe maybe it is the security testing pipeline, right? Or it's the, the penetration testing aspect of it uh, that still is going to add time to uh, engineering um, activities. What's your um What's your suggestion for gaining buy-in on those activities that are secure, you know, purely security focused um, or how, you know, based on how you understand that today versus maybe how you understood it in the past uh, and how it brings value to your organization or your engineering organization? Yeah, I think if you're going to have a, uh, an item that impacts the, the backlog, right, and it's going to impact the product engineering teams, to their ability to deliver. I think what you're looking for there is probably to bring it in early, right? The earlier you bring it to the engineering teams, the more options they have to be able to help you out. Um, I think articulating the value. Um, and then I think, and I think you've talked about this on past podcasts, is like having an education component to it, um, making the, the engineering teams understand why it's important. Um, I think, you know, the classic case of that is like PII at a financial institution, right? Um, Kind of educating people on, you know, PII and phishing campaigns and why those things are important um, makes them understand later why why a you know a security or um, you know a, a DevOps person is saying we need to lock this down. Right? They, they'll have a fundamental context that um, is a shared and mutual understanding of why things need to get done. Right. No, I mean, you make some really good points. Bringing it in early is something we're always trying to do. That's where the whole shift left thing comes from. We don't, I mean, as an industry, we don't do it very well. We are very much focused on the testing aspect of it. I think we're getting a bit better, but we're still not there yet. And if folks understand it earlier on, it's going to have less of an impact down the road. We have a, a metric that we always are talking about in uh, in security based on this like really old NIST study that, you know, you're... Uh, your bugs are going to cost you something like 30 times more the, or exponentially more, whatever phase in the SDLC you're going to be repairing them in. And it's the same thing with your security projects. You know, if you introduce it when we're in the planning phase of like, hey, you know, we want a new ID provider, uh, you know, maybe we should think about it when we're in this new project and we can fold it into that new project. That's going to go a lot smoother than if you try to add it in the middle of development. Um, the education we've talked about a lot uh, on the podcast, but one of the things I'd love for you to dig in on, because this is something that you and I talked about uh, a while ago, and that's bringing the value of security solutions or security activities to engineering teams. 
Do you have advice for some security folks out there that are perhaps looking for how to how to bring that value to the table? Because um, I think that what we look at ourselves as a lot of the time is a cost center. So we're mostly thinking of value and how much does this function, person, tool, whatever cost. Um, any advice on how a security practitioner might maybe look at value through a different lens uh, from an engineering perspective? Yeah, well, I think it also depends what type of audience you're trying to um, you know, dress with that. I think if you're looking at kind of like a senior manager and executive, you're trying to get budget, you're trying to get time spent. I think what you're trying to do there is show impact, um, damage, um, what would happen, maybe a little bit of a scenario of how, you know, um, uh, a particular type of breach would cause, um, uh, harm to the organization. Um, so I think that's the, the, the way to get into an executive's, uh, conversation with an executive. Um, I think with the engineering teams, I think it's showing, uh, you know, maybe taking a page out of a product manager's book is the find ways to, in a sense, test and learn with the engineering team. So I think a lot of times engineers um, maybe reject some of these things is because they don't understand um, the, the importance of it, the value of it, right? So finding ways to, uh, you know, kind of demo the, uh, the, you know, if you have SQL injection, showing it that you can do a SQL injection attack, right, um, on their code base. Right? That's something that they can internalize and understand, um, as opposed to just trying to describe it to them. I think if you can show them the the way that a breach can happen, I think one it, they find it interesting from an engineering point of view, um, but then they can also see, oh well, actually you're doing this with with my code, um, so this is something I need to clean up. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, we just we talked about that a, a little bit, um, and I think we we landed on, you just have to be really careful when you're working with an engineer's code because it's like their baby, you know? And you don't want to be like, hey, I broke all these things and now I'm going to tell the world about it, you know, or I'm going to tell this, I'm going to bring this to a town hall. Uh, much more effective if you can sort of have that conversation one-on-one -on -one with that engineer and be like, hey, you know, I found this thing. Let me show you how it's done uh, or let me show you how to break this, um, you know, because I think that I don't know how many people I've talked to. Uh, I've had this question at a couple of security conferences where we talk about doing that, and it's extremely effective in some scenarios where you're you're demonstrating this. But you know, in other times, if it's ever in a public arena, I mean, the like the the sinking in the chair kind of thing. You know, that get blame is not hard to find. You know, <laughs> when uh, when you're pulling it up in uh, in like an engineering meeting or something like that yeah i think that's important to uh um i think that goes to engineering culture as well though i think um sometimes engineers focus i think this is true on the product engineering side too uh, on being right and making mistakes i think it's better that we uh, have created culture where um those things can be discussed i think code is just because you're the one who wrote the line of code doesn't necessarily mean it's all your fault you know someone reviewed that code someone tested that code someone you know it ran through some you know analyzers as well right you're not the only yeah. one out there and i think if we we have to lose the mindset of it's just um you know if something's gone wrong it's bad i think you think about how we handle post-mortems right we don't go to a post roller and say like, Ken, you failed to deliver something or Simon, you know, you should have done that. Right. 
because if you do that, no one's going to learn and no one's going to create a better world. Um, so I think from a, a security side, I think it's the same thing. Is uh, It's not about, you know, Jonathan wrote this bad line of code. It's more about, you know, this issue exists and we need to learn from it, right? Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, you, know, you don't want to call people out, but also I don't think we should be ashamed of making mistakes. We're all human. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. And I love that. Um, that, and I, I do think that we, I mean, security, the security industry has fostered this, this blame mentality as well, to a degree, you know, I can't believe that this engineer would do this or do that. But like you said, you know, we're all human. I, if I, it's like you, you ask the, um, that same security engineer to go right through mediation. Sometimes they just can't do it in the same way. So I, uh, I agree with you, you know, I, and I, I love that, uh, that element of culture. What's a good way to, um, to foster that from the either from the security side or the engineering side, or have you have you come into any organizations where a culture was more toxic, more blame oriented, and uh, you had to make a shift um, into something like it's okay to make mistakes, like we're all in this together? Yeah, I think uh, I think it all starts with talking things out in the open. I think it depends on the size of the organization. So if you're at a small startup like I am now. Um, you know, you can get everybody in the room together or on the Zoom together. Um, it's so I think it's setting it out, saying it explicitly, you know, living it from a leadership point of view. You know, I make mistakes all the time. I tell my engineers, you probably have heard this in the past where, you know, I'm an idiot sometimes. I say stupid stuff. So people need to be able to like correct me. They need to, be able to correct their, you know, their engineering managers need to have that open, you know, dialogue so that um, people uh, you know, you know, together we can build a better product. Um, I think in a larger organization where maybe have a little bit more of an infrastructure in place, um, I think making it part of your culture. Um, so if you have, you know, like demo days or, um, any type of, uh, group, um, way of sharing solutions, I think making security a first class, uh, you know, kind of solution there, um, as well as you're demoing product, that's great. You want to be able to ship that, but also talking about how it's we're making the world you know more secure for our customers and for our internal stakeholders. I think it's it's important to having that there, um, and then uh, you know having it uh, uh, if you're doing postmortems and you're trying to figure out why something happened. Um, again, not making it about the individual, making it about the problem, and making it about how you're going to prevent the problem in the future. Yeah, I agree with you. Security people go to your hackathons and build things rather than break them all the time yeah i uh i am i'm like a huge proponent of that i would love you know get in with your engineers and build stuff with them um yeah i i love that man um hackathons uh the uh demo days uh so that you can like demonstrate these uh ways to attack things and and do that kind of kind of stuff um what about for like non-technical folks right we talked about the fishing a little bit you mentioned mm -hmm. uh things like that now in your your org, I'm not sure if you are responsible for like IT components or anything like that. But for folks that maybe aren't uh, like code oriented or don't develop software, um, what do you have any ideas on how they view security these days and how we might have take that same approach uh, for maybe technical folks, but maybe not like in the weeds code type of type of folks. Yeah, I think it's very important to get that in early. Um, I think uh, 
working in most of the regulatory regular regulated companies that I've worked in in the past. Um, I think the ones that do it well do it early. Um, so I also think one of the ways to get to a non-technical stakeholder is to make it fun, market it, right? If you throw up a slide and you're like, you're all going to suck and you're all going to lose data and, you know, there are bad people out there. People don't know what to do with that. Um, but I think uh, making it real world. Um, so like I just had all hands recently where I talked about some phishing attacks and I use some real world examples that I've seen in my life at companies that I've worked at in the past. Um, and it was to be able to say like, you know, I modified it so that it was more aligned with our company, but to be able to say that these things really happen um, and they're, they're not, they're, they're common. Um, I think it allowed people to be able to internalize it and understand it, that it's not just this thing that, you know, uh, you know, Ken's up at the podium blabbing on about security type stuff. It's more yeah. like, oh, this is, you know, an important thing. And now I've immediately seen like an uptick of people, you know, when they are starting to deal with PI data, they reach out to me and say, you know, I need to ship this data to this person. Is this the right way to do it? Or, you know, I got this weird email. Is this, is this one of your phishing campaign emails? Right. Um, so I think uh, those are uh, uh, are good ways to get non-tech stakeholders involved. Yeah, it's I mean building the building the security brand internally. I mean I I can't I couldn't agree with you more. That's like a uh, something that is is tough to do sometimes. But you know it's it, the more you repeat the message, the more folks have a face to put to like where do I take this? Um, it helps it helps everyone I think, and I think it goes you know, both ways too. you know, engineering teams, like who do I go to for this app or who do I go to for this product? Same kind of, same kind of deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's also one of the areas where I think going back to the comment I made earlier about like using some of these controls to make your engineering processes better. Um, you know, who do I need to go to to speak about this application is a question that anybody in the engineering org should be able to answer, right? Um, that's like, you know, Simon's working on a, you know, on one team and he's got a question about this, you know, making this change in this app, he's going to want to know who to speak to, right? Um, so you, those are the types of things where I would use those changes to make the engineering org better. And also, by the way, at the same time, oh, you make the security better at the same time. Right. Yeah. Getting your face out there. Um, so, I want to shift gears a, a little bit out of like the tech and the marketing and all of that and um, and sort of um, go to like you you as a uh, as a uh, technology leader and um, for folks that are maybe looking to go from from uh, an engineering role uh, into a leadership role like any any like failures you've had along the way that make you um, like that you've learned uh, how to be a, a successful leader to sort of be where you are today. I mean, I, I know that we, we are constantly talking about, um, you know, uh, engineers and security folks that are every day in the weeds doing that kind of thing, not being the best managers or the best leadership, you know, what, what is, what are some things, whether that's something that happened, um, like in your career or with somebody or something outside of your career or something that taught you those skills that you need to sort of view it through the leadership lens. Yeah, I mean, I, I think kind of going back to my postmortem conversation, I think I learned the most from all my failures. I think you, your successes don't really teach you that much. And being willing to 
to recognize that sometimes you're a doofus and you just need to listen to the people around you and no matter what level you're at, um, I think is important. Um, I think, uh, you know, kind of going from an IC to a, a manager and then going from a manager to a senior manager are probably the two, two of the hardest pivots that someone has to do in their career. Because when you're an IC, you kind of control your world, you get your ticket, you can do your development, you can test it, you can be fairly confident that you're, you know, you've handled everything and hand that off to QA and see if it, if you were right. Um, but once you become an engineering manager, you, you got to like think about other people in that mix. Um, you can't choose when to not pay attention to people, right? Sometimes someone's having a bad day, you have to get involved there. Or sometimes someone's doing awesome, right? Um, it's... Uh, like communication is really key. Um, you know, like a, I was, you think back to a project I was working on recently where we were working on a pretty heavy deadline and just simple things where we were gunning for a particular date. Um, and I knew that we had a UAT phase afterwards um, and just not communicating that to my engineering teams um, so that when they hit their date, they worked really, really hard to hit their date. And then I was like, oh, okay, now we're going to do this testing phase. They like, we're like, what the hell? Like, where did this come from? I thought we were going live on the, you know, on the first, right? Um, and it's just like recognizing that uh, while things may seem obvious to you, um, it doesn't necessarily mean everyone else is on the same page. Um, so uh, to to quote someone that I we we all worked with in the past, he once told me I have to say things ten times before people understand what I say, um, and I, I think there's some truth behind that. Um, so I tend to repeat myself a lot um, because you never know, like words have meaning. Um, so I, I think that's the thing that most of my failures always come back to communication. Um, usually it's because I thought something and someone else thought something else. And usually we were both using the same words to describe it. Um, so I think taking that extra beat um, and communicating, um, you know, thinking about how it's being communicated, thinking about the forms that's being communicated in. Um, different people learn differently. Um, so some people like to read it. Some people like to see it. Right? Sometimes people like to listen to it. And then I think that then moves you to the next phase, which is when you become managers of managers. Um, and then you don't even have all the details, right? You have to rely on your managers to be able to provide you some of those details. So uh, again, it comes down to communication, having that open line of, of communication, helping them and mentoring them. So a lot of times I already talked to it, it's like the organization tree is basically upside down. Everyone who's writing code, the IC engineers are the ones who are doing all the work, bringing all the value to the company. And everyone who's a manager below them um, is there to help them do their job, right? So if you're an engineering manager, you're there to help your engineering, your team be as good as they can be. If you're a director, you're there to make sure your teams can be, you know, work together and be, uh, you know, as good as they can be. And if you're a CTO, you're responsible for making everyone else better. Yeah. No, man. Um, that's, that's, that's great advice. Um, and it seems like you're focused a lot on communication. One of the questions that just popped into my head, listening to you, how has, how has that changed in this world of remote work? And are there any techniques or anything that you've used for, um, people that do learn different ways? We've, we talked, we had a whole episode about training and education and like how people learn different ways, you know, through consuming media and stuff. And, uh, just wondering if you've had any challenges that you, you're working to overcome or have overcome uh, in a remote workforce uh, for those uh, different types of communication receivers. Um, 
Yeah, I think, you know, with remote, right? Um, you know, I feel like in engineering, remote hasn't been as big of a deal for us. Um, you know, we've always had a healthy work from home policies. We've always had remote offices um, where we've always collaborated across offices. Um, so in some ways, having everyone on Zoom gives them a first person presence. Um, but I do find it tiring. So I think finding space and time and finding the right cadence for that is important. Um, but in terms of like communicating, um, I think the, the forms are still the same written, visual, like diagrams, right? Or spoken. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, I think maybe it's a little easier for people because they can, you know, review that stuff before the meeting. I think that's key. Um, so pe some people like, I, know, I would count myself in this, like I like to ingest things before I comment on mm -hmm. them. Um, some people can, you know, read the Zoom chat look at the diagram and also be on Slack at the same time. I don't know how they do that, but um, <laughs> yeah. So I think, uh, I think you just have to be considerate to having different people in your audience. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm with you. I like an agenda. I hate meetings without an agenda, man. They're like the, the bane of my existence. But one of the things I miss so bad is the whiteboard, you know, yeah, being able to like, jump into a room and whiteboard. Yeah. I'm still looking for that, uh, that tool I've got. I just bought a, a tablet, you know, like one of the Wacom yeah. tablets, I'm trying to figure out a way to do it because uh, that's the one thing that I sort of miss the brainstorming, the, the quick, uh, you know, turnaround on that stuff. Yeah, but, yeah no, I haven't found a good solution for uh, for the whiteboard. Um, I, was hope, I was hoping to pull that uh, out of you, man. Uh, sorry. Like some secret sauce. Yeah. I mean, once you have the diagram, then usually you can use, you know, your lucid chart or whatever, but like, the doing that like ideations phase where people are just like throwing stuff on the board and the squigglies and where people walk out of the room and there's something on the board that nobody really understands afterwards. <laughs> uh, but for some reason, everyone understands the solution. Uh, yeah, we don't, uh, I haven't found a good solution for that yet. Well, at least we've eliminated the security ramifications of leaving things on a web. <laughs> it's encrypted. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's uh, yeah, security through obscurity. There's things on the whiteboard that have been there for like two years at this point. Yeah. Um, anyway, Moving on. So, um, so anything else on, on that, uh, Simon about the, uh, like, especially cause you know, I know from, um, on, on your, you know, from your perspective, like you've moved through a couple of roles as well. Uh, any of that ring true for you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm honestly curious in terms of now that you're kind of a leader in your organization, um, especially when you were an engineering manager, perhaps an IC, are there any cultural or behavioral behavioral practices that you noticed you were doing um, that negatively impacted security DevOps that now that you're kind of encompassing the whole space, you're like, I really wish I didn't do that. Uh, yeah, I don't, yeah. I mean, I guess from a security and DevOps point of view, um, it's probably mostly about alignment. You know, I think uh, with product engineering, you tend to have the whole like PMO apparatus behind you, especially in larger organizations, um, where sometimes with, I think, security and DevOps, um, the the way that they behave is a little bit different um, in a lot of organizations. So I think not engaging them early enough, um, especially for, on a DevOps side, I think is, is probably a mistake. Um, so one of the ways I've tried to solve that in our current organization is trying to get more of an alignment between our product engineering teams and our, uh, our what we call our SRE teams. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, um, yeah, I, I think 
it's probably about alignment. Again, I think it comes down to communication. I think um, making sure that people know what you're trying to do. Because um, I also, I think if you're telling them what you're trying to do, they're probably going to have the ability to be able to inject like, uh, oh, have you thought about these security concerns? Um, like if you, you know, if you if you go to them early and be like, you know, here's our architectural diagram. We're thinking about building this thing. They may point out a whole bunch of stuff, which will be almost zero cost for you to build out of the gate. And it only becomes a cost when you try to retrofit it in later. So I think that would probably be the biggest uh, mistake I think I would have made with my spec ops. One, one, one thing that you definitely mentioned um, a few times is, is start early. Mm. Um, and I don't like my, my experience of different companies that I've worked on usually have the startup phase, which is, you know, kind of what you mentioned. You've got very small amount of people. You can have everyone in the room. Usually you're aligned just because of, of the nature of the size of your company. And as you become, you know, more successful, you hire more and you start to kind of lose grasp a little bit of like team sizes and stuff. And I feel like a lot of companies kind of reach that like top of the hill moment where it's time to mature as a company and start making tough decisions. Um, you know, whether that be actually addressing technical debt, forming, you know, more rigorous processes. So I'm curious on the other side for for companies who have not taken their due diligence and started early, I feel like the solution is almost like a drastic halt to product engineering and product development and and kind of fixing what's about to burst. Uh, I'm curious if you agree with that. I, I'm curious if there's like a kind of a counter solution in your mind that would make more sense for a company in that situation. Um, and just to give you an example, say we have like a, a monolith application that's like shared across the entire organization. Um, we do an audit and there's some very like like se severe like dependency issues and, and security bugs possibly they're in the news right now um like i'm curious from from a leadership perspective mm -hmm. how do you how do you tackle that yeah i would i mean it's engineering in the end right so i think uh for one reason why we in a sense have gotten into that situation is because we've taken a, a waterfall approach to DevSecOps, right? right. Um, instead of uh, doing an iterative approach and paying down that debt as we go along, we're just allowing it to accrue and accrue and accrue. So, uh, like any, uh, I think, uh, you know, unmanaged uh, debt item, um, I think what you need to do at that point is you need to make it a project, right? You need to make it a first class um, project, and you should be able at that point to be able to articulate value. Um, I think that goes back to what Ken was talking about earlier, where now you should be able to sit down with, you know, the, the exec who owns the budget on that and be able to say, look, we got these, you know, 12 breach points. And it's just a matter of time before we're on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, right? Um, you know, because it's impacted our, our bottom line. And if you're a listed company, even worse, right? So I think um, it's at that point now it becomes an item on the, on the roadmap and it becomes... You execute against it like any other feature that you're doing, because that's basically what you're doing right now, right? You're building a feature or right. security feature that was just left out of your previous build. Yeah, and um, and just to like to comment on your waterfall piece, I mean, security wasn't a part of the the beginning of that, right? So right. it's like <laughs> you know, it's a it's a missed opportunity that has come back to bite you. Yeah. Um, I'll defend the the security guys. They they may have been part of it. No one may have paid attention to them. So. <laughs> right. And, you know, uh, another comment I wanted to make, John, is when you bring stuff early to the security team and they don't have time for it, 
I mean, just as like, uh, if you wanted to play the, the, the cocky card, I mean, it's like, if you can say, Hey, I showed it to you like nine weeks ago, here's the email. You just didn't get to it. I mean, that's also a strategy, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, all joking aside, um, you know, we've been going for, for quite a while, um, and to, to put a bow on it, I think we've, we've learned a lot about, um, like what your view is on communication and how, uh, security teams should approach, uh, a variety of, you know, people in the organization. And I've always appreciated your insight into that. And just sort of like thinking about budgets, thinking about what the value is, thinking about, you know, how often you bring it to the table, the different, um, people that you have to approach. And I think that, uh, you know, that is, uh, that's like a mentality that I share and you've certain, certainly put that in my head and I carry that with me all the time. So, um, thanks for, for having that viewpoint and for, uh, taking the time to, to sit down with us and, and share it with everybody. No problem. Um, anything else that you're doing, uh, or that you have that you want to share with the world? Um, you know, uh, any interesting projects or virtual conferences or anything that you're, you've got lined up that you want to, you know, throw out there that sort of stage is yours type of thing. Uh, no, I mean, right now we're building some interesting stuff over at Jetty. So uh, we're recruiting. So if anyone's out there is looking for uh, some uh, roles, uh, check out our website. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're building some interesting stuff. So. Cool. Yeah. Anybody that gets to work for you, man's a lucky, lucky person. So, I'm, uh, you know, I'll, we'll definitely endorse that to the, to the end. Um, yeah. So that sort of wraps it up with John. John, again, man, I uh, really appreciate you coming on to the show. Um, as always, if you like what you hear or you have any feedback or anything to, to throw our way, uh, you can reach us on Twitter at R2DSO, the website www.r2dso.com, uh, or you can send us an email at security at R2DSO.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>